Spoiler alert, when this podcast talks about the books, it talks about it in the context of the entire The Song of Ice and Fire series. And when it does so about the television shows, it does so in the context of the most recent episode. You've been warned. Before the Dragon, a podcast dedicated to George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire and the HBO Game of Thrones prequels franchise. Right, all right, all right. Another edition of Before the Dragon podcast. Thanks so much for joining us again on a Monday. Today, I am going to be joined once again by Kelly, our A Song of Ice and Fire Siren from the West, and Susan, our A Song of Ice and Fire Siren from the East. We're going to be wrapping up our conversation about Chapter 20 of Fire and Blood That chapter is entitled Under the Regents, The Hooded Hand. And then we are also going to have our complete conversation, which is kind of short, relatively speaking, about chapter 21, which is Under the Regents, War, Peace, and Cattle Shows. More about that in a little bit. But before we get there, before we rejoin the conversation that we've pre-recorded Let me tell you, mattsaudioblog.com, that is your one-stop shop for this podcast, as well as our The Dust podcast, which will be covering his dark materials as it comes out on BBC and HBO later this year, uh, presumably sometime this fall. I don't have a release date on that yet. Nonetheless, you can find all of that stuff, mattsaudioblog.com, M-A-T-T-S audioblog.com. It's also where you can find our contact information like mattsaudioblog at gmail.com, M-A-T-T-S audioblog at gmail.com, or the Twitter for this podcast, which is at the letter B, the number four, the dragon pod. Find that on Twitter. Follow us if you wish, or just submit your comments. Feedback is always welcome regarding any of these chapters that we've been talking about. You've heard the spoiler warning up at the front of the podcast, so I don't need to give you that. Let's get right back into talking about these chapters. We start off with our wrapping up of Chapter 20, Under the Regents, The Hooded Hand. Chapter 20, Under the Regents, The Hooded Hand. So, uh, what else do we have on this chapter, guys? Only other thing I can think of, uh, well, uh, one of two things, is uh, the idea of the young half-sisters of the king, or they're not younger than him, they're older than him, but young young women, uh, they're starting to be concerned about the king and queen are so young and it's going to be a while before there can be any heir, and being that there are very few Targaryens at this point, what are they going to do about you know, having an heir? And so they start being concerned about the uh, two sisters and who they might marry and so forth, and so that brings us to interesting situations between the two of them when we have Bela who is very wild in her behavior and they come up with someone they think is a suitable match for her but she's not going to go along with any of that as when she takes off and runs off to her cousin Alan which results in the two of them getting married and then the other sister is much more amenable to uh, apparently the fact that they both had such different situations throughout the war led to them having rather different temperaments at this point in time. And I think that's a good example of what we were talking about before, that so many of these people are uh, a result of the war is really playing into who they are and what's going on with them at this point in time. And you can see that with these two sisters. 
especially. And the other one who, uh, Reyna, who has the little dragon baby, is been brought up in a situation where it was more of a traditional court situation for her, and she was treated more like a traditional princess, and she's just more amenable with going along with uh, who they want her to marry, though they still, even with that, they actually allow her more leeway in choosing her match, but she chooses somebody that they are comfortable with, so they let that go ahead. They're more concerned about what happened with uh, with Alan and, and Bela. Yeah, one of the things, uh, didn't we not earlier in the story, was it was it the, uh, was it Raina, Rhaenyra? Somebody had twins and she ended up switching them. Right. Yeah. So I was instantly, you know, the, the way that they're so different, I was instantly thought of that. Uh, not that they got switched or anything, just that I, I it's like, what is it about... We we've heard the whole Targaryen coin flip thing. Is it is it <laughs> if you have twins, is one going to be one way and one the other? You know, well, you know, in that now that you mentioned those other girls in that situation, it sounded more like it really was personality issues because there was already something inherently about the two of them before anything separately kind of happened with them in terms of one of them being more outgoing and wild, and the other one being more of a bookish. Uh, more suited to being a, uh, a septa, but in this situation, they make it sound more like it was the the cases of of what they experienced during the war that have uh, shaped who they are. And so George takes no sides, nature or nurture. He <laughs> decides to bring representations of both. Right. Yep. And just to drive it home, the names of their dragons were Moon Dancer and Morning. <laughs> Very uh, two different sides of polar opposites. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and I, I drew more comparisons between them. Um, you had Reyna, who was, you know, like Rainey's, uh, was soft and sweet and liked music. And then you had Bela, who was hard and wild, like Visenya. Um, you also had their their other comparisons, like between Sansa and Arya. Um, and, and further, uh, common, uh, commonality between them is that one of them still has their kind of magical creature and one doesn't, <laughs> um, mm. how, in this case it is switched where, um, Raina has her dragon where Sansa did not have her, her direwolf anymore, but just a little bit of comparisons between sisters and one was in the veil, uh, Raina was in the veil like Sansa. And so she kind of mm-hmm. comes out of it with a bit of uh, more political savviness and maybe that will play into Sansa's storyline. Whereas you had uh, Bela who was in the, in the mix of it, you know, she actually uh, fought on flew on her dragon and, and was um, in the thick of it. And yet that's kind of like Arya. So maybe when they come back together in the books, you'll have a little bit of this. I liked how their stories kind of play into the next chapter and, and gave me a little bit of hope for how Sansa and Arya might uh, reconcile, <laughs> even though they're so different now. Anything else on this chapter, guys? You said you have one more, Susan? Yeah, the last thing is just, uh, you know, the chapter concludes with a couple of uh, deaths here of characters, you know, who died because of the winter fever, having, uh, as uh, Kelly had already mentioned, the Queen uh, Alicent, but you also have now the Lannister hand who succumbs to it. Um, So, and... You know, they they sum up 
his life and everything he'd gone through uh, very nicely. But I also thought it was uh, uh, a nice touch that we get with um, the young King Aegon being by his bedside and being, in fact, uh, someone who kind of ministered to the Ill, sick and ill uh, during this whole winter fever uh, situation. And that goes forth with the idea of the Targaryens maybe being immune to some of this stuff. Uh, which uh, but neither he nor his young queen seem to be touched by this illness. Uh, and also with the whole idea of the king being a healer, the just kind of ancient idea that kings are healers. And so you know, for him to be uh, kind of ministering to the ill was kind of an appropriate role for him to play. Yeah, I like that you brought that up because uh, we're talking about somebody who, at the, when he's talked about in, in the last chapter... In the hour is it hour of the wolf, mm-hmm. where it's brought up that uh, he dies of consumption. So where does the doctrine of exceptionalism uh, play with this kid? Because the winter fever doesn't seem to get him, but uh, consumption does. I mean, he, he's like he's like I use a perfect example when he's a young man of the doctrine of exceptionalism. And then at the end of his life, well, he, he died of consumption. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I can think of is that one of two things, either one, it wasn't actually consumption because consumption can look like a poison or poisoning can end up looking like consumption. So maybe mm. when we get there, it'll be uh, kind of hinted at that there was something more to that. Um, or there's something to this doctrine of exceptionalism where we do have all this evidence that like two of Jahara's uh, bedmaids or, or, you know, um, handmaidens were succumbed to the winter fever, but Jahara did not. So it does appear that there's, this is evidence that she's um, has some immunity. Maybe there is something about their immunity that comes and goes uh, based on certain circumstances or or something where they, uh, they have something in their, uh, what they're doing, what they're, uh, how they're, you know, handling themselves. I don't even know where to begin with that theory, but there's something external that affects whether or not they are immune or maybe it's just chance. (laughs) Maybe it's just chance. I was going to say, maybe, maybe it's like a diabetic thing. Sometimes it skips a generation or something like that. Cause we go all the way back to the, the Daenerys that, wasn't listed right. in the world of ice and fire and she died of the shivers correct yeah yes so uh and you always wonder or, or i had proposed i'm like well maybe the uh maybe the maesters who worked on uh on the the world of ice and fire had omitted her name in order to preserve the doctor doctrine of exceptionalism yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to think of how it, it, it's choosing to present itself, appearing throughout someone's life in different ways. Because this is a great example with uh, Aegon Three here, who seems immune in his early years, but then seems to be not immune in his later years. So what changed there? Um, and then you've got uh, this young girl, uh, Jahara, who was does appear to have been immune as a child, whereas Daenerys was not. And maybe, so that kind of rules out the you know universal. Maybe as children, they're immune. I don't. Yeah, there's. Um, different ways it could be presenting itself in each of these Targaryens um, in a different way based on their individuality, too. It's random chance. That's what we yeah, can come no. up to. <laughs> no, that's, that's not a fun story. It's got to be a pattern, Matt. We've got to find the pattern. <laughs> and each disease seems to be different in terms of whether they get affected or not, too. So, you know, that's true. so many different factors. It's hard to, hard to know. 
Hard to know. Uh, just real quickly, if does anybody have anything else? Mm -mm. Okay, I'm going to end this chapter with uh, the little bit. Susan had mentioned it. Uh, uh, Gildane gives a little bit of a send-off to Tylan Lannister here. Sir yeah. Tylan never married nor fathered children, so there were few to mourn him when he was carried off. The veil he wore to conceal his disfigured face gave rise to the tale that the visage underneath was monstrous and evil. Some called him Craven for keeping Westeros out of the Daughters' War and doing so little to curb the Greyjoys in the West. By moving three-quarters of the crown's gold from King's Landing while Aegon II's master of coin, Tylan Lannister had sown the seeds of Queen Rhaenyra's downfall, a stroke of cunning that would, in the end, cost him his eyes, ears, and health, and cost the queen her throne and her very life. Yet it must be said that he served Rhaenyra's son well and faithfully as hand. So that's not nearly as sentimental as uh, it was about Corlys Valerian. True, but it's a nice, it's a nice. Uh, well, it makes me feel bad for him. It, it, I mean, oh, well, yeah, it, you know, never married, no children. There's few to mourn him when he's carried off. It's awful. Poor guy. Much more tragic. Yeah, that's going to be my life. Anyway, are we oh. ready to move on to the next chapter? <laughs> sure. Okay. Under the Regents, War, Peace, and Cattle Shows? Chapter 21. Under the Regents, War, and Peace, and Cattle Shows. Well, who wants to take the first stab at Unwin Peak? I, I will. I will just say this. <laughs> I will just say, what does unwin? What does unwin mean? It means to lose. This guy is a loser. That's all I'm going to say for now. Uh, I'll let you guys bring up this, the, the more salient detail. <laughs> deep. That was a, a, a deep analysis, Matt. <laughs> as deep as the kiddie pool. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah, he, he got named to the Regency uh, after the sea snake died by Thailand. So, and then he was outside of the city, I think, or outside of the keep, at least, maybe within the city, when the, the winter fever hit. So they closed the doors to the Red Keep and all of the regents were either sick inside or, or um, stuck outside. And I thought that was kind of a neat moment where we actually got to see Aegon three make some of his own decisions here. And uh, before Unwin Peak could barge his way in and undo everything, we get this little moment of Aegon three being, you know, a little bit autonomous. And it was great. He fills some vacancies. He names the people that he wants to be in the Kingsguard um, to take over for the three i think king's guard that um died during the fever and then he named a, a new uh hand of the king and a new admiral of ships so the these were his kind of decisions that he made all by his little boysome and uh because orwell was let out of the cells to help with the fever he had orwell send the ravens so munkin was out in the city helping the the sick so it's kind of neat that you see these kind of uh, B characters start to be uh, have a, a more of a role, I think, at this point. But then, of course, the door is open and in comes Peak. <laughs> undo, undo, undo. He just controls Z's all over the castle. <laughs> and, and really, Aegon's, none of his decisions were bad decisions. You know, they were all pretty sound in my mind. 
Yeah, he showed logic and 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 wisdom, and and then his reaction when Unwimpy came in and and undid them was very interesting to me. He kind of just stands there. Let's see. Mushroom tells us that King Aegon the Third reacted to the decisions of his regent with a sullen silence, speaking only once to protest the dismissal of Massey and Darklin. Kingsguard serve for life, the boy said. To which Lord Peak replied, "Only when they have been properly appointed, Your Grace." And that's all he said. He's like, uh, rules. <laughs> they exist for a reason, but yeah, this is Aegon three showing a, a little autonomy was was cool. But do you guys have any um, parallels for Peak? This whole chapter is about Peak, so I kind of want to before we dive into every little thing he does. Do we want to have? Does anyone have an overview of some character that he reminds us of, or is he just this totally random, unique? character that uh george has, has created for us to despise <laughs> well yeah i was gonna say i don't i don't find anything you know that i can compare him to in terms of a specific character it's just like he is the amalgam of a guy you just don't like a guy who's not very smart doesn't seem like a guy who doesn't uh who uh thinks he's smart and makes him too big for his own britches um you know i i'm not that much of a of obviously not a fan of him maybe he was just created for us to show how um Aegon the third who did make some really good decisions regarding replacement of, of some of the council and everything um but Unwin does all of these stupid things to just reverse all of it he combines the protector and the hand back together uh which gives him more power you know the foremost of the caltrips uh though I guess this was not really widely known, um, one of the three still living, Lord Unwin had proved at Tumbleton that he was no man to trifle with. He would prove that again in King's Landing is what Gildane says. But uh, he had been among the, the fiercest of the Greens. Why do you want this guy as your hand uh, if, you're, if you're a black? John Roxton, uh, orphan maker, Maker is now held by Unwin. We find that out definitively here. More of the, uh, uh, in terms of the peaks, when the pride and power of House Manderley became overweening, it was Lorimar Peak who humbled them and drove them into exile in the north. So, you know, he doesn't have any love for the Manderleys at all, I'm assuming, for which service King Pearson, the third gardener, granted him the former Manderley seat at Dunstanbury and its attended lands. So even the point of Peak's power is from basically kicking somebody else out. The whole Peak family, to me, seems like a bunch of bullies who don't really do well. I have to say that, you know, again, in the previous um, chapters, when he came up originally with the, with the group with the Caltrops, you know, I, I didn't think so poorly of him at that point in time because I liked the idea that they were trying to uh, undo these two bastard dragon riders who uh, were becoming so obnoxious and power hungry themselves and had been, you know, kind of traitors to their own causes. So, you know, I was kind of rooting for the Caltrops and their plot at that point in time. But uh, there is nothing in this chapter that uh, makes you want to admire him in any way. I did think all the information about uh, House Peak was interesting, though, because we know from reading the Duncan Egg stories and so forth that uh, this is a, a important family, and we knew that they had had one castle, they had had three castles, and eventually, because of the 
the uh, Black Fire Rebellion, they end up with just one. But you didn't know much about them. I didn't know anything about the whole, you know, what happened with the Manderleys or so forth, not the details of it. And even though we don't get a whole lot of it here, we get enough that we're able to form a much better picture of, of the Peak family and what they were when they were at their peak of power in the reach. <clears throat> <laughs> he, <laughs> uh, the, the thing that gets me about Unwin Peak is he stole a guy's sword. He uh-huh. stole a guy's Valyrian steel sword. He made no attempt to return it to the family or anything. He stole their sword. What what mm. what does that say about it? It's you know this is a guy that we just don't like for me. And regardless of what the rest of his family has done or not done, this dude is a piece of trash. <laughs> Agreed. And for no other reason than I was reading this entire chapter, waiting to find out, okay, what are we going to um, see what's going on with the livestock? I thought we were going to have some sort of, um, <laughs> like, uh, you know, logistics story about the, uh, you know, what's going on with the realm and how they're having all of these, you know, some sort of gathering where they're going to pick the best cow. And I get to the end of the chapter and I'm like, you are kidding me. <laughs> I mean, okay, the the guy even cheats at the county fair, right? I mean, he's the guy that that brings a, a, a you know, he tries to make everybody else's cow look bad. And, and yeah, I mean, this guy's bad. I don't like him at all. And there's a little note about him even from before this, when they were talking about him bringing his daughter here, how he had five children. Um, they all, the rest of them had died. He had an, an older daughter who had gotten married and died in childbirth at like 12 years old or something like he doesn't like he sees his kids as tools like and that just he's ugly he's just an ugly dude <laughs> well his role is um similar to one we saw before which was um rogar baratheon right this um guy who was put in charge of a regency basically and how that kind of played out is is similar i think in that it just goes to these smaller lords heads and not to say they're smaller lords just that because baratheons are pretty big but just that they're not kings anymore so how this went to their heads and they just end up screwing it up and making themselves like just seem like the bad guys of history just another time that this role was not handled well and it's interesting how how you had this you know, previous uh, chapter with Lord Tyland uh, or Sir Tyland, uh, who did well and didn't let it go to his head and, and overreach. So just by comparison, um, that this role being filled well and being filled poorly, uh, keeping track of all of that is is uh, just shows the character of, of these these people and their houses, I think. Yeah, we, right. he, he has his brother uh, made into what the Lord of Tides? Uh, the Admiral of Ships or something? Or, or, yeah. or, or the, the Master yeah. of Ships. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he, <laughs> the guy he puts in, he puts his brother in, in there, uh, a guy who's great at land battles, but gets seasick. Oh, yeah. Uh, Sir Gedman Peak. It's his uncle. Uh, but oh, it's yeah, his he's uncle. Known, <laughs> yeah. He's a Gedman Great Axe. Uh, he is a renowned warrior, but uh, <laughs> sorry, he doesn't know anything about ships and he puts him in charge. Yes. Interesting choice there, Unwin. <laughs> yeah. It just all speaks to how he wants to keep power. Um, that's just awful. Yeah, all these initial actions that he takes with the putting uh, two people in with the King's Guard, he prevailed upon the uh, 
new King's Guard uh, Lord Commander to put in place two of his own men, uh, a nephew and a bastard brother, and then puts 500 of his men on the gold cloaks. And this whole little uh, personal guard that he puts up around himself that uh, they refer to as, as the fingers. And in that group, I was, you know, of course, you're, you're taken by this uh, volunteer captain, Teresio or Teresio, who was Teresio the Tiger. And that kind of puts you in mind of uh, when you think back to Volantis in, in our current story and the tigers and elephants and the way they're tattooed and so forth. And the idea that back in Volantis, you have the fiery hand is the you know the association with Fred Priest and so forth. It just reminded me uh, mentally of that when we get the idea that this group of people that he surrounds himself with are, are known as his fingers, and uh, mm-hmm. so and with the main one being from Volantis, but then the they jokingly, even though uh, they he is called the tiger to his face, they jokingly call him the thumb as his role in the fingers. <laughs> oh, Susan, I honestly didn't get that joke until just now. That's very good. <laughs> oh, geez. That makes so much more sense. I thought I couldn't figure it out. I was like, he's the thumb? I don't know. He's like a, a dumb dumb? I don't know. But that makes so much more sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he makes all of these like nepotism appointments. Um, the one he put in charge of the gold cloaks was uh, the son of one of the college, like, Caltrops. I don't know that word either, guys. Sorry. <laughs> and he, uh, yeah, and then he puts his own um, master of swords um, in charge of the King Aegon's. Um, well, he makes him the master of swords at the Red Keep and then um, makes him the, uh, puts him in charge of training Aegon. And then we get this whole whipping boy storyline. Um, if you guys want to talk about that at all, um, I don't know. Did you, first of all, did you guys read the whipping boy in school? Tell us. It's uh well, yeah it's it's the idea it's a whole it's a whole short story well as a kid it's a it's a novel when you're a child but uh it's like a middle school book I think and um it's just, it's called the whipping boy and it's about this uh, king who or this prince who is friends with his servant who is used as his whipping boy and about how he would whenever he was naughty his his friend would get beat so how it kind of plays out um I think the whipping boy is actually the main character it's been a while for me as well but. It just reminded me of that. And I, of course, uh, assume George is the literary master and knows of this uh, prolific book uh, and, and is calling on that. I mean, it's a real role as well. So it's maybe I'm applying my small knowledge to George's extensive historical knowledge <laughs> and thinking it's the same thing. But yeah, uh, Gaiman Palehair shows up again. He actually was showed up in the last chapter and we didn't mention it, but he was uh, when they were talking about an heir uh, for Aegon and they were looking around at the, the girls, the twins and, and so forth. They actually asked Aegon what, who he thought uh, would be his, a good heir for him. And he suggested his friend Gaiman Palehair and said he'd been a king before, which I just thought was the sweetest thing and broke my heart. <laughs> oh. And then shows how much he thought of this boy and how close they've become. And now they're using this boy against him um, as a whipping boy when uh, the king <laughs> was reluctant to take the uh, the orders and uh, direction from his dancing master, his uh, his master at arms. The big happening in, in this chapter for me, of course, is uh, the death of Jahera. 
It, it's very sad. Um, on the 22nd day of the ninth month of 133 AC, Jehera of House Targaryen, queen of the Seven Kingdoms and last surviving child of King Aegon II, perished at age 10. The little queen died just as her mother, Queen Helena, had, throwing herself from the window in Magor's Holdfast onto the iron spikes that lined the dry moat below. So, all kinds of speculations are made. Was she killed? Was she just grief-stricken uh, due to, you know, Reyna's loss? Uh, is, I think is what's posed up there. Um, if she's killed, then it could be a Kingsguard. Um, and some even speculate maybe it was on the orders of Aegon. It could have been Lady Cassath- C- Cassandra Baratheon, who was briefly betrothed to Aegon II. Um, could it have been Unwin Peak uh, sending, you know, his uh, one of his fingers who might have had access? Lord Peak could not have pushed the child from the window himself, to be sure, as he was elsewhere in the city when she died. But the King's Guard posted at the Queen's door that night was Marin F- or Mervyn Flowers, his bastard brother. Mushroom says Flowers would have never pushed the queen out the window, the dwarf claims, but he might as well have stood to allow someone else to enter her room if that someone were known to him, someone mayhaps like Tessario the Thumb or one of the fingers. Nor would Flowers have felt the need to ask their business with the little queen, not if they said they came at the hand's behest. I mean, is the whole reason we have this cattle show at the end because... Unwin Peak wanted more power by having his daughter be the new queen. Are we willing to go that far? It certainly sounds, of all the different ideas that are put forward as to why that happened, that one sounds the most logical. I mean, there didn't seem to be a reason for her to, I mean, at her age, to commit suicide. Uh, especially in that kind of manner. I mean, it didn't, it doesn't, you know, line up with anything that we've heard so far. I mean, uh, yes, she seemed to be a rather tragic figure, but for her to have something so gruesome occur, something's fishy going on. It ties in with whether or not Helena was uh, also murdered or killed herself that way. And I I can't say. I think it is most likely, um, it's presented to seem most likely, I think, as well, that uh, it was Tessario or one of the fingers and the Kingsguard we we were just talking about, the Bastard Brother Flowers, uh, had allowed for it to happen. And I think we find out that he's actually not like the greatest dude later as well. So it's okay to to put him into that. uh, We can see him in that role very easily. Even though he is on the King's Guard, and you'd hope that would mean something, but alas, it uh, these things happen. Um, but yeah, the the suicide, I'd give like a, a you know tiny percent possibility because she was so. Uh, it's just mentioned over and over again how unwell she was um, mentally, and and this being the way that her, she knows that her mom died is slightly more convincing to me than if that hadn't been the way that her mom died. So um, that makes that at least a little bit more believable. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's just so tragic and she's so young and it does sound so horrible and I don't understand the, <laughs> sounds awful to discuss afterwards, uh, just saying all that, but the logistics of, or the, 
how that ended up happening where the fall doesn't kill them. This moat doesn't seem very like an empty moat. You would think would be a couple like story or two lower than ground level. And then you have these people who have their towers, a couple, you would think several stories above ground level. And yet they fall and the fall doesn't kill them. It's this, these spikes that they fall on that, uh, that get them like, well, it is the fall onto the spikes that kill them. Well, she survived, right? And then <laughs> uh, for like a half an hour in pain on the spike until they, they pulled her off. Oh, that's true. Oh, it's like so bizarre to me. Um, but then again, like if she did, I mean, she was obviously in agony. But if um, that's another part that makes me question if she was actually pushed or something, because if she was alive-ish for a half hour, like, and, and didn't say, like, somebody pushed me or something like that um, in that half hour. It sounds, it seems like it. it's just one more reason why um, I think the, the suicide is plausible. Okay. Good enough. We skipped a little bit of, of the, the daughter's war and stuff like that, but there is a tinfoil that ties into both of those. Um, and I'll just go over it really quick. It's because it's it's silly, but I enjoyed it. Um, and it might come up something. The uh, a- after the the war in um, in the narrow sea area, all of the stepstones and stuff, which we can talk about in a second. But there uh, there's a a section where they. Um, like an envoy, a group go to Bravos to speak with the Sea Lord, and while they're there, there's um, a knight named Sir Dennis Hart who goes to speak with the uh, faceless men. And the only reason that and it's just thrown in there is like one sentence and it's not super, you know, important or anything. It's mentioned in between like one Lord taking a mistress and hanging out there and mushroom saying like, I couldn't stay. They'd like me too much. <laughs> yeah. But well, who, who, what, what was the purpose of hiring possibly the faceless men? I get it is what you're getting at. Yeah, and the, the interesting tie-in is that uh, Alan Valerian, who's I mentioned before, it's his uh, the Sea Snake's younger brother's kid. So it's kind of like uh, Alan's cousin, um, the ones that he forgave and reconciled with after they kind of argued about his his succession. Um, the one that uh, Darren Valerian was married to a heart, Hazel Hart, um, and their daughter is the one who at the end of the chapter shows up and uh, is presented by the twins to Aegon, who he chooses to marry. Mm. So, that's, yeah, the tie back to this being um, that uh, there is a weird connection to faceless men and then a unsolved death, which led to some advancement to House Hart. <laughs> Interesting. Mm. Interesting. I'm going to poo-poo on it for now, but uh, interesting. (laughs) Interesting. There was one detail that I I, uh, meant to bring up before. I was uh, kind of trying to look through my notes for it, but just uh, came across it here was this, when we were talking about the the master arms that that Unwin put into place uh, and and his role in all this, he just really reminded me of Alistair Thorne. Alistair Thorne, in terms of, you know, just his whole manner and trying to train uh people so just wanted to bring that up as one um allusion to somebody who's has a similarity in the current story excellent excellent so you want to talk about the battle for the step step stones well um you know what i thought was interesting about that is the whole role with uh with alan valerian uh that he plays in all of this uh but uh we have the situation set up where 
this had been something that's going on in the background. It keeps getting brought up, um, as you said, through some of the dance and then uh, some of the aftermath of the dance in terms of this has been going on where you have some of the free cities that are aligning with other uh, another faction of the free cities and are fighting over having a battle over this area, uh, specifically control over the stepstones. And I think one of the things most important about that is that it's it's affecting trade and uh, the ability to travel across the narrow sea and to you know, transact uh, trade effectively. So that was why they really needed to do something about it. So since uh, Lannister has helped them to build these new this new fleet, uh, they're able to take some action about that. And I think that that's a, was a good idea. Uh, but of course, you have then these people who Unwin has put in place who are rather uh, not appropriate for the role uh, between his uncle and this Black Bean, Ned Bean, who um, he tried to have take over uh, Alan Valerian's fleet. And Alan uh, quickly sends him back. It's like, uh, no way is that going to happen. Real quickly. I wonder if this Ned Bean is a tribute of George's to Sean Bean. Uh-huh. It has to be, right? It's the only thing that I can think of. It's like you put Sean's last name and, and, and uh, his character's first name together, and there you go. There it is. Yeah. But yeah, especially because he stood out to me because he's a, a pirate, or not pirate, but he's a, he's a seaman, and he is uh, referred to as a black bean for his beard, which is like <laughs> an interesting Westerosi choice instead of going with black beard, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know if Ned is anything like, if Ned Bean is anything like Ned Stark, uh, or Sean Bean for that matter, but... I just thought it was a name a name call out. Yeah, yeah, and I totally think it was. It, so when I looked at him again, and I was like, why why would they stick the word bean in there with such instead of going with black beard? So I think I like so much that that's a possible emphasis yeah. uh, for that reason. <laughs> Very yeah. good. And this is the, of course the way that uh, Alan Valerian earns his nickname, Oakenfist. Uh, here's the quote. Right. The queen's prow smashed into the side of the great Provosi ship, quote, like a great oaken fist. Uh, love that. And we even get a chapter named after that coming up, don't we? The Voyage of Alan Oakenfist. Yeah, that's yeah. like the name. Yeah, from yeah now for on. the name. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, exactly. that, and that name seems like a, uh, a tribute to, to uh, Lord of the Rings with the, the dwarf who has that nickname. Ooh, very cool. Excellent. Love that. Um, but as you mentioned, then a group is sent uh, to negotiate with the uh, with Bravos, and uh, this is this is unwin again. So once the step zones is done, actually, this is might be the only smart thing that unwin did in terms <laughs> of Alan. I mean, he he says, "Oh, okay, Alan." You did this. You defeated the Bravosi fleet. We'll take credit for that. All right, we'll take credit for that. And now you go help with uh, all of the all of the reavers going on on the other side. So he gets rid of Alan, keeps him from being able to be recognized as a hero, yeah, where he might get more power. And 
potentially sends him to his death again by uh, taking on uh, Dalton Greyjoy. Right, right. And and I think he, this was done very adeptly, so you can't say that in yeah. terms of he did welcome, they welcomed him into the city like a hero with him riding in on the elephant that he captured. And, uh, of course, I couldn't help but then think about Cersei and her elephants from the final. Yes, I wanted elephants. I wanted elephants. Yes. So we have an elephant here that he, he rides in that was supposed to be uh, meant for the, the the Sea Lord's menagerie in Bravos, And Alan rides it into King's Landing and the king's out there to welcome them. So he gets a royal hero's welcome for what he did. But then once he gets into the, the uh, uh, throne room, uh, the king has disappeared and the uh, peak really dresses him down. Right. Well, and, and for good reason, because what ends up happening is Lord Mooton uh, ends up getting sent to Bravos mm-hmm. uh, to negotiate the peace. And basically all of that treasury that they had lying around gets depleted. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. And so not only have you had a lot of hard times with the lack of trade because of you know, what was going on. Now you have no treasury to be able to do anything to help people recover, whether the trade happens or not. Yeah. And they gave back I mean, the elephant. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Alan gets, they have a feast for him where he does get knighted and he gets appointed to the uh, admiral of the fleet, uh, master of ships. So uh, he does get, again, treated like the hero but then as you say the what they do with that in terms of sending him out against the Greyjoys is definitely putting him at quite a bit of risk so that was a very slick move there by Peak. but it's uh it's like Cersei when she um tries to reward Loras Tyrell for his gallantry by sending him off to do something else just as gallant equal to your skills and intending for it to kill him like <laughs> yeah yeah right. go go take on dragonstone okay exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if he does great and if he dies great <laughs> yeah so it's, but it's just as stupid because you take away this fleet that you just uh had built and have to defend your city so he takes away the, so it, it's equally um, cunning, it's low cunning, I suppose, because <laughs> now they're a little bit defenseless and they only have a few of the ships left to, to guard the bay um, against this. Because what happened was Alan defeated them on sea, but didn't take any of the land. So they still have the stepstones um, occupied by these foes. So it's only a matter of time. And when they went to Bravos, they saw how they could build a warship in a day. That was so mm-hmm. cool. Like, it doesn't seem uh, very wise. Like, it's not a big picture solution. It's very petty of Unwin. <laughs> well, as uh, Alan takes off to uh, go try and defeat the Greyjoys, we find out that his wife, Lady Bela, is pregnant. Yes. So that was, you know, at least he had a nice send-off there to... Something to hope for, think about the future. I uh, liked how it was, you know, a reason to fight after, for, yeah. Right, right. Name him after, uh, you know, my uh, grandfather if he's uh, after Corliss, if he's a, a son, and maybe he'll be on the Iron Throne. And she says, I'll name him after, you know, uh, Reyna, and he may, and she may um, be a dragon rider. Right, right. <laughs> Love that. 
and I think we skipped it a little bit, but the um, it's interesting that her her twin sister had also gotten pregnant and uh, but had a, a miscarriage earlier. Um, so just another kind of comparison between these uh, these twins um, and their uh, life kind of patterns. How one one gets pregnant, the other gets pregnant, but of course they got married around the same time. Uh, I think within like two weeks of each other or something. Um, and yeah, the uh, this one. Um, well, and that miscarriage mm-hmm. is quoted as, as as a possible reason for Jahara's grief. Although, given mm-hmm. the uh, way that uh, uh, the way that Jahara seems to be miserable all the time, anyway, I would think that would have just been a last straw. Yeah, and plus she's ten years old. It seems really weird to me that a ten year old would be uh, very. I don't know, focused on pregnancy and children and having children. Although I guess being the queen, it's expected of her to have a baby. Yeah. Who knows what years, who knows what the handmaidens are saying. Exactly. Specifically Cassandra dot, dot, dot. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It didn't seem to be something that would would cause that kind of of grief. Right. Yeah. Agreed. But yeah, the, she, but Bela being pregnant was cute. I like that. Her, her, her attitude. uh, I always get a kick out of her. Right on. Do we want to move on to uh, this whole business of Unwin trying to get his daughter Mariel? <laughs> yes. Uh, in with the egg tur- on here. <laughs> the turnip queen. <laughs> <laughs> Lady turnips. Uh, because of the hands explanation that Aegon didn't have to like his daughter the same way uh. that he didn't like turnips. Ah. Uh. Reminded me of when they were trying to marry Rhaenyra, uh, what, what, or they did marry her first wedding, and and the husband was thought to maybe not be really into women. They were like, "Oh well, you know, you know, I might not like fish, but when I get fed it, I'm going to eat it." You know, it's the same type of thing. Of you know, well, they they can just live with the situation, even if it's not something they're going to enjoy. They'll they'll do their duty, and that's that. Just gonna say it, it's such a stark co- contrast to what he says later when he, pr- you know, proposes the idea of this ball and how this, uh, no one can fill the place in his heart, and yet uh, she will have to be the Jahar or no, the Alisane to his Jaharis, and like, com- you know, he's such a hypocrite. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, but the only reason that he has to set anything up like this at all is because all of the other lords are like, they're like, what are you doing? We know what you're doing. Don't uh-huh. don't do that. And so he has to come up with this whole farce of a thing, and then he tries to rig it by bringing his daughter in early, and having you know her spending all this time with Aegon. Yeah, it finally overreached to the point where they were just not going to put up with that. Yeah. And speaking of characters in in world, kind of looking back at the in world history, you would think he would look at, or maybe he was looking at uh, the High Towers and how Alicent was brought in and as the daughter of uh, the Hand and uh, ended up marrying the king uh, after um, the old king died, and how maybe he had the same hope for history repeating itself that way. He just didn't have the skill to uh, play it out in, with as so much subtlety as the High Towers did. Kind of like Cersei. Some some comparisons to be drawn, for sure. <laughs> so then they go into this whole thing about how, you know, uh, now everybody in the land is thinks that their daughter could potentially be the possible queen, and everybody starts putting forth all this, uh, all these potential 
women. And what I thought was interesting was there's this list initially of some of the more prominent families and who they were putting forth. And a lot of them were some of these highborn widows that we had talked about. But uh, they also mentioned that uh, Lord Torin, who had was uh, one of the regents, was uh, putting forth a Manderley because of the fact that Manderleys had had past engagements with the Targaryens that hadn't worked out. And I was just thinking, oh, yeah, Unwin Peak would just love it if a Manderley was one. <laughs> 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 yeah, given his family history and the Manderley family history, that would that would have been a, a, a nice little stick to him. That would right. I always think they, they their feud reminds me of like a a lesser version or maybe a newer to us version of the the Blackwoods and the Brackets, but way less equal, which makes me think that the peaks are even more, I don't know, fray-like because they kicked the Manderleys out. They, but then the Manderleys went on to become so uh, renowned and powerful in, at White Harbor that it probably just eat, eats away at them, you know, that they're the, still this kind of little unknown family from the Reach, uh, whereas the Manderleys have the, the second biggest town um, in Westeros, I think. Like, White Harbor's just, or maybe Lannisport, but, like, yeah, it, it's it's huge. Like, so I was just picturing the, the feud, uh, seeing if there was any more comparisons from the peak Manderley feud to the Blackwood and Bracken feud. <laughs> That is, in fact, a story I would love to know more about. But the fact that it's previous in history to where we are right now makes me wonder if we're going to get that story. But I'm hoping that it might happen as some of the stories in these books have where it's they're kind of reminiscing about something that's happening in the current storyline that they're talking about, but then go back to give you some perspective by filling in more information. So then maybe we can get some more of this uh, Manderley in the reach, what happened, the story behind there, them being sent away. Yeah, I think we're, uh, I, I can picture it in like a Dunkin' Egg uh, book uh, where because they're going to be in the north uh, in the next one. So maybe they'll get some Manderley uh, backstory. Mm. Well, and we do have, we do have its name of a king, you know, that this happened under. So we do have a fairly focused point of time. Now, where that right. is in relation to everything is another story, but uh, I really I don't have much to say about this this dang cattle show. Uh, it it feels silly, demeaning, awful. Uh, I think it's just put in here to be uh, infuriating, and you're supposed to hate Unwin, and um, it was successful. <laughs> it definitely made well, me hate him, but let's call it by its official name: the Maiden's Day Cattle Show. This isn't just your average cattle show. <laughs> they made sure to put it on some kind of Valentine's Day holiday or something like that. And uh, they just totally demeaned hundreds of girls um, by turning it into a 1960s version of Miss America contest. And like Aegon doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want to be there any more than we do. And of course, everyone is going to want to take the opportunity to uh, anyone who has any aspirations uh, is going to want to take the opportunity to try and present their daughter and think that she might be a potential queen. But sadly, what happens to so many of these uh, girls, if they seem to be a rival of, of any substance, is all, all these things started to befall them in terms of, of uh, either accidents or terrible rumors to the point that you know 
well, one of them I have to point out, you know, the, the whole purpose of a lot of this was that they wanted a more age appropriate queen when they went forward. Um, you know, somebody that was a little older than they had originally. And one of the poor girls that was thrown down the stairs was a little eight year old. Yeah. It's awful. Yeah. Yeah. No so, doubt. Yeah, the, no doubt by the fingers. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and he's giving all of this, these bad rumors out because even if I feel like if, even if these girls didn't have a chance to be um, like, even if their, their parents or whoever sent them knew that these girls didn't have a chance to be um, the queen, it would still put them in the foreground of making maybe a, a higher match than they otherwise might've been able to make. And so this ball is kind of used as a, um, an opportunity for them um, in another way. So he's, he's not only, you know, taking away their chance at being queen he's he's taking away their chance at making a good match uh that wouldn't even threaten him so he's mm. just being ugly here and and it becomes interesting like i'm just sorry i'm just I'm so mad <laughs> but yeah he just he uses all of these girls and somebody even dies in the in the ballroom from the heat and the crush um it's just this this messy uh event that it does it does uh, have a happy ending though I think I don't know did you guys have anything to to highlight the ending uh, well, before I jump there? Well, the the whole just the whole bit of the the humiliation that these girls are going through, and think about how traumatizing it is. Okay, maybe the king will like you, and you go up there and you're trying to make your mom and dad proud, um, or or what have you, or maybe you're actually interested in it yourself, and he's just kind of like looking past you i mean how traumatizing is that for a girl you guys would know better than me yeah yeah and you're only one of thousands when you get there yeah <laughs> yeah and it's in front of everybody and this risk of like you know rejection public rejection um everyone's gonna know like everyone who came all of these girls who came from these villages and towns and, and castles around everyone who lived there knew that they would be going and you know, you have to go back now and say, Nope, <laughs> did Wouldn't not me. pick me. Yeah. yeah. Or these other girls that had these horrible things, you know, said and done to them would have to come back and, and have even more, uh, you know, shame or, or, uh, you know, scars from this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, all right. Well, with all of that doom and gloom, why don't we skip to the happy ending here? Well, there was a, we did. I do. There was one funny part, which was that uh, you had uh, Lady Sam uh, show up again, and um, yes. <laughs> she made a suggestion of her sisters, who were uh, again uh, different uh, uh, horses of different colors for his uh, his grace to consider. But she didn't make him choose. She said, "Why not have them both?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very, very Sam thing to say. <laughs> And then I like how she then provided a list of a lot of other noble uh, girls, different families around. And <laughs> yeah, she is just looking out for for Aegon three here. She's like, I've got you, buddy. I've got you. What do you need? <laughs> we'll figure this out. <laughs> She's a good friend. Let's talk about the 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 quote winner here. Well, I will let um, uh, Kelly go into. Uh, the details that sounds like she she's got ready to talk about there, but I just want to point out the one thing that I think was so clever about this is it, it seems like as you're reading through all these things that are going on, 
And then when uh, ladies Bela and Renera come out here at last, it seems like they kind of kept all this kind of quiet that, uh, you know, they didn't let on about any of this. So when they do show up, it's a it's a big surprise. So I think that that was very politically savvy and clever of them to do that. Mm-hmm. All right, Kelly, lay it on us. Yeah, and I do wonder how far back the plot went, like for them to have decided to do this because they we, we heard about Bela and Reyna from a while ago, and it's never really said that they got along um, since they got back. Like they were not like they, they were fighting or anything, but just they were so different and it wasn't really put out there that they hung out together and plotted together. But here they show up together with this little six year old uh, who's the daughter of the late Darren, who was uh, killed um, in the, the fighting and the uh, with Alan out in the Stepstones, I think. So, yeah, she's now orphaned. Um, her her mom, Hazel of House Heart, I mentioned earlier, died during the winter fever. And so this this little six-year-old girl is apparently so beautiful that it was just a given she would be a queen, which uh, I liked the presentation of her. You know, she's this orphan and she has the support of his sisters. And I like that it's, you know, his sisters are looking out for him. I trust that they'd make a good decision for him. But it is weird that she's described as a she sparkled mushroom says and when she smiled the singers in the galley rejoiced for they knew that here at last was a maid worthy of a song like she's she's six it's so weird (laughs) that's yeah that's true but i mean it's obvious i mean the description sounds to me like it's pretty obvious that she has valerian blood uh you know and coming from house valerian you know it's just blood of valeria you know is what i'm trying to to say she's got those characteristics, Targaryen, Valerian type of appearance and look. Yes, yes. And it, but so do his sisters. You know, they're standing right next. She's standing right next to them. She is just a, a unique beauty um, standing next to others, uh, you know, of the same gender and blood lineage. It's just interesting um, that she stood out so much. I have too much more to, to add to it than that. I mean, the, the, the fact that she is a. Um, a six-year-old does end up kind of defeating the whole purpose of that they wanted to have someone who would be more likely to have an heir sooner so that they could have that dealt with. And yeah, the security concerned. of it. Yeah, the yeah. security of an heir. Yeah, and another another lose for unwin. Right. <laughs> yeah, uh, I just was not impressed with all of this at all despite the, this this little girl uh at the end that's nice and all but it uh i don't know we'll see where it goes well we do know you know from what we know of of uh his descendants that she's going to be the mother of several a couple of kings and the mm-hmm. three daughters that go into the maiden vault yes so, uh, yeah Oh, I was just thinking uh, when I went back uh, through the Targaryen family tree and did little like boxes around what houses each of these people who who married into the Targaryen um, royal lineage, uh, where what houses they came from. Um, Valerian was far and away like the highest uh, like family who married into their uh, their line. So as soon as she was presented, it made perfect sense um, that th- this would be uh, the, the future of a uh, queen. And, and then the, the line would continue through them um, for, for, I just don't know 
why it was kept on the back burner, like why it was hidden. There's some questions about that, I guess, if they uh, thought that maybe she was too young. And that's why they kept her kind of behind the scenes until it kind of became apparent that they had to move up their plans or something. Um, just some curious uh, ways that questions about how, how this all played out. Um, but it seemed like a, a foregone conclusion that as soon as a Valerian was presented, that that would be the, the choice. <laughs> mm hmm. Right on. And, and at least because she was kind of uh, uh, secret or hidden up until this point, no harm uh, came to her in the process. Ah, oh, Susan, you're so smart. That's exactly why they did that. I'm, I <laughs> didn't even think of that. That is brilliant. I, I'm way less uh, suspicious now. That's a good point. That's a really good point. There you go. Anything else, guys? Or are we ready to wrap this up? Uh, uh, rip uh, Lady Turnips. That's all I've got to say. <laughs> <laughs> poor girl. Yeah, poor poor girl. girl. She was probably a pretty decent kid. Yeah, and she said thank you for the doll, and he said, I, you know, <laughs> I'm glad you like it. Like, if it wasn't for these adults pushing these kids around, like, they might have had a happy life, you know? <laughs> right. True enough. So true. Very true. <laughs> Thanks again, guys, for joining us for these chapters, and we will continue onward to the last two chapters of Fire and Blood in the future. In the meantime, I want to thank my sirens of A Song of Ice and Fire for coming and giving all of this great knowledge to you where I just sit back and react emotionally, basically. I am the Stugats of the Ice and Fire podcast world. Uh, but uh, thank you, Kelly, our Song of Ice and Fire siren from the West. If people want to talk to you about A Song of Ice and Fire, how can they find you? You can reach me at... Uh... Kelly Underfoot, it's my name, Kelly, K-E-L-Y, and Underfoot like my girl. Very good. And our siren of A Song of Ice and Fire from the East is Susan. Susan, how can people talk to you about A Song of Ice and Fire or Star Wars or anything? <laughs> well, my Twitter handle is Black Eyed Lily, so I would be more than happy to respond to anybody who wants to ask me about anything I've talked about today on there. All right. And remember, folks, if you have any feedback, please feel free to send it. Matsaudioblog at gmail.com, or you can just go to matsaudioblog.com. That's M-A-T-T-S audioblog.com, and use the contact form there. You can also find links to all of our podcast apps. And if you could take the time to leave us a review, we would very much appreciate it. It's been a while since we got one, uh, but I would very much appreciate reviews, good or bad. We share the scathing as well as the... Uh, the ones that are positive so uh, feel free to tell us what you really think of the show how we can improve how we can uh, or whether you like what we're doing in certain ways or not and we'll see you next time bye bye send tweets to the letter b the number four the dragon pod and send emails to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com.